0: Welcome to Kitchen Table Conversations, a series of short and shareable conversation starters for those of us who have or love and support people with a complicated and beautiful brain. Here's your host, Angela Geddes. Hi everyone and welcome to Kitchen Table Conversations. Thanks so much for tuning in today. We're still in the month of September, so we're going to keep our focus on raising awareness and debunking some of the myths and trying to clarify the realities for many individuals and families who've been exposed to a variety of different substances, and in particular alcohol during pregnancy. So we all know that alcohol is pretty prevalent and the the use in our culture here in, in southwestern Ontario. And in Canada, it's pretty it's pretty out there. You know, you can't really go very many places without having alcohol a part of um, festivities, whether people are really, really happy and excited about things or whether we're kind of feeling down um, and maybe even grieving. there just seems to be alcohol pretty much everywhere. And so it is really important that we keep these conversations going back home around our own kitchen tables because there are a number of risks associated with alcohol use overall. So please check out, I encourage you all to check out the the new guidelines around uh, consuming alcohol and the risks associated with uh, a variety of different other health conditions Um, and obviously that risk increases uh, with the amount consumed. So check out those guidelines Uh, there is going to be a link on my website to, to provide some more clarity around that but also as I mentioned during our last podcast it's one thing to place risk on ourselves and it is another another thing altogether to risk doing harm to another person. And in this case, what I'm speaking of is, um, is our pregnancies. And I believe that it's up to all of us to support healthy pregnancies. And again, that's why I'm having these conversations. So there is no room for blame. There's no room for shame again alcohol is out there so where there is alcohol there's risk of exposures to pregnancies and the number of exposed pregnancies continue to rise and i think many people are going to be surprised at that but when i talk about those early weeks prior to the pregnancy being confirmed i think we all should be um taking notes on this because there was a time where it was understood that if there was early harm then the pregnancy would naturally terminate for example and um, There would be no risk of of, uh, harm to the baby, but we do know that that's different now. There is risk even in those early weeks prior to the pregnancy being confirmed, and that's when the majority of alcohol is consumed in pregnancies when they're unplanned. Right. So when people do not expect or when they're not actively planning a pregnancy and they're consuming alcohol, there is risk to the baby. And not every pregnancy will be that's exposed to alcohol will result with a full FASD diagnosis or fetal alcohol spectrum disorder diagnosis. But as I mentioned in previous podcasts, there still is significant risk for um, more subtle but really profound impact in terms of um, increased risk of uh, depression or. Uh, anxiety, other mental health conditions, certainly delayed speech, for example, um, and, and maybe some developmental milestones that are taking a little bit longer to reach, or subtle learning difficulties and concentration challenges that, that may not meet criteria for a full FASD diagnosis, but they're not without consequence. So I think these are important conversations to have. So being that it is FASD Awareness Month, as I said, I'm going to continue with this focus. And I just received a really um, helpful article through a newsletter from FASD United, which is from the United States. But I'm going to link it on my website as well because it speaks specifically to 50 things that uh, we all should know about FASD. So check out my website for the full 50 points if you're interested, which I hope you are. And I hope that you're able to spread this link around and again keep this conversation going. So I've often talked about what FASD looks like because it is really a hidden condition. Um, The majority of people with FASD do not have any facial features or physical um, obvious physical anomalies so it's basically unrecognizable in over 90% of people who would meet criteria. So I think that's one of the pieces that's really really important and although it is a spectrum of disorders I think we also have to understand that anybody who qualifies for an FASD diagnosis is really struggling with a lifelong condition that's going to require supports and maybe supports and services and allies and and a circle of people who can support them in really good ways across the lifespan. So this is serious. It's not just, oh, he's got a little bit of FASD or he's got, you know, he just struggles in this area or, you know, really he should just get his act together. It's an FASD. But I don't really believe in that. And I literally heard that from a psychiatrist last week. I don't believe in FASD. So we've still got a long way to go, even within our medical communities. So let's just keep this conversation going. So what it can actually look like, which is the first thing on this FASD United uh, list of 50 things, is it can look like depression. And there's a range. So people really struggle uh, with serious and uh, severe Uh, and long-standing depression, or there could be, uh, you know, depressive episodes that can be really difficult. Fixations and rumination, abnormal or flat speech sometimes, or just, you know, kind of different expressions than one would expect to maybe even excitement or maybe something really seriously gone wrong. Um, the, The affect can be a little bit different than what you would expect. Um, oftentimes there's a real sensitivity to noise. You'll see little people hold their ears or block their ears lots of times. And lights can be really difficult as well. And lots of times we see people who really want to have friends and really want to love people. But the next thing you know, they're pushing them or they're uh, reacting very um, aggressively or with frustration when things don't go their way, Um, maybe boundary issues and wanting lots of hugs from people who don't necessarily want to uh, provide hugs, for example. Um, Oftentimes, there's a range of anxiety that goes along with this. In fact, I've never met anybody with FASD yet that doesn't have some level of um, anxiety and low mood. Um, sometimes there's abnormal posture or there's some balance issues and there are some physical things that go, um, slightly differently and there's some poor eye contact uh as well it highlights here so sometimes people can engage in eye contact pretty easily uh but then there's other times where they're not and seemingly not interested or not paying as much attention but sometimes there's just a discomfort um with that and also very very common to see ticks and fidgets and uh, concurrent tourette's conditions as well and i mentioned aggressiveness and that seems to be um you know, there, there seems to be real difficulties with impulsivity, and uh, people react, you know, emotionally and physically, and sometimes quite aggressively. So that's the first thing that this um, this newsletter shares. So I think I think many of us will find some of that kind of interesting, and maybe contrary to what we understood around an FASD diagnosis. Um, the second thing that they list here is that there has been a med, uh, medication algorithm and I'll list that on my podcast or, um, sorry, on my, on my website as well link to this podcast because this I think I arm families with it all the time to go to their family doctor to talk about it because it does break down symptoms into clusters of uh, and so lots of times people can kind of self-identify and say yeah I really do struggle with impulsivity or I struggle with my mood or I struggle with this group of uh, of symptoms more than maybe another and so there's um, medications that can address each of those symptoms Um, potentially in a good way. Of course, everybody's different and uh, medication isn't for everyone, but sometimes it can be very, very helpful. So it is also really important to get a proper diagnosis, no matter what age you are, because this can offer real insight into particular areas of strength and particular areas of challenge. And we always say that psychological evaluation, which really, um, you know, hones in on um, how people... Learn best, and what kinds of things are really difficult for them. I think uh, allows us to um, to really support them in good ways, and to make sure that we don't um, place expectations that are out of reach and really, really frustrating. Um, people just don't need that extra frustration in their lives. I don't think anybody does, and I would not want to be continually forced to try something that is just out of my wheelhouse. That just doesn't make sense. So we can do better when we understand what that uh, psychological profile and learning profile really is. The other thing that um, this article highlights is that FASD is often misdiagnosed as ADHD or autism, which can hinder the treatment of the individual as the supports required for individuals with FASD are quite different from those for um, people who have ASD or people who have ADHD. So I see this just about daily that um, people come in with multiple diagnoses and often autism and ADHD, but it is instead linked to alcohol exposure and it is different. Another point that this uh, article wanted to highlight is that um, many people with FASD demonstrate remarkable resilience. And if you've ever heard me speak before, that's one of the things that I highlight as well. Um, It's just incredible to me how despite the difficulties and despite the isolation and despite the the, the, the challenges whether it be at school or in the workplace or within relationships or just you know kind of managing their bodies and their physical health um, every day seems to be a new day and uh, you know just met with somebody today uh, demonstrating remarkable resilience and just a, a desire to live his best life. There's also a tremendous benefit in focusing on uh, building skills and capacity and a sense of themselves um, and and a really positive view of the world, but also focusing on interdependence rather than complete independence. So we always encourage people to have a circle of support And I would say that families and caregivers can't really do this alone, and I don't think that um, individuals who are experiencing FASD should have to navigate this world alone either. I think that the evidence is pretty clear, and it's certainly clear in my practice, that people do better when they have a circle around them who understands their, their strengths as well as their challenges and do their best to kind of nurture those strengths and support environments that can really um, help people to shine. Because I think we all need to shine. Um, So again, rather than focusing on independence and that incremental learning, recognizing that the scaffolding or that the supports that are helping people to be successful um, need to remain, you know, far too often we see the supports come away from the individual, particularly in school, as soon as what it seems to be skills are mastered or um, behavior is sort of, you know, regulated and and a little bit more manageable. And the reason why it's more manageable is because the supports are in place. So let's not take them away and, and let Let's not set people up to, to fail or to fall or to go backwards because the goal is to, to move forward in a good way. So often said too that everyone plays a role in preventing FASD and supporting healthy pregnancies. So um, there's a lot of different reasons why people consume alcohol and none of which include to deliberately harm uh, the growing babies. So by, these, by having more of these conversations, we can do uh, our part to support these healthy pregnancies. And number 21 on the list, and this is where I think I'm going to end, is uh, within child welfare, children who are experiencing permanency disruptions. So for homes that have broken down, whether it's in the foster foster families, um, we see lots of kids who have went from one foster family to another and adoptive homes sometimes really, really struggle. And a lot of times these parents and caregivers are really wondering what is wrong with them and why is this happening? And maybe I'm the wrong fit for this uh, for this child or these children. And, um, you know, the bottom line is there is a lack of appropriate training for child welfare professionals, so social workers, and the caregivers in the, in the foster system as well. Um, and this leads to placement disruptions and additional trauma to the children. So parents are wondering what's wrong with them. Children are testing and wondering what's wrong with them. And why is it so that people are so willing to give up? An informed FASD diagnosis, along with the appropriate education and support, will reduce disruptions and lead to more secure permanency for our children. So there's a number of articles on my website in the resource section that speak to the need for social workers to be more FASD informed. And there's articles written specifically around child welfare and how we in an ideal world can really play a significant role in terms of prevention, both of the incidences of FASD and the impact of FASD or prenatal alcohol exposure so there's a tremendous role but we the evidence is clear that social workers are not typically FASD informed or not to the degree that they could or should be and not really sure where to go to get more training so that was really what um, I've been seeing this for years And it's also um, evident in private practice as well, there's very few of us that feel um, comfortable or competent and confident in our abilities to provide uh, FASD and trauma-informed supports to families and caregivers. So we do have more training available and it's on demand, it's on the website. So I encourage anybody who thinks that maybe they might benefit from from learning more skills, specifically to social workers and practitioners that already engage in assessment processes, feel free to check it out or share it with people who um, might benefit from your professional or your informal informal supports. So once again, um, this is another really important, in my view, uh, kitchen table conversations. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a wonderful week. Angela.